Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy with my co-host Mary Stone. Hello, Mary. Hi, Kate. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. It's very exciting to see libraries reopening again. It seems that life is beginning to return to normal. But of course, it does go without saying that the safety of our visitors and our staff is our absolute top priority. If you want to find out more about what we've got in place to keep everyone safe, then please take a look at our website. Uh, Where you'll also find details about temporary opening hours and about changes to some of our new services. Okay, so I'm really excited about the new service Hampshire Libraries have just started offering. It's where our staff select a bunch of books for you based on the type of books you like and you just swing by and pick them up. There's a link to the new service, which is called We Select, You Collect on our podcast notes. You'll find it on the website as well. It's already been uh, fantastically popular. In the first few weeks, more than 4,000 people have signed up to get our staff to choose them a selection. Oh, I can totally see why. As much as I love books, I never know where to start. I tend to keep going back to the same authors I know and love, so it's good to be encouraged to try new and different writers. Yeah, and it's really good to have the advice and recommendations from library staff, because they really know their stuff. Uh, as you'll hear when we talk to Ellie from Loxwood Library. She'll be joining us to talk about a, a classic book that's available on BorrowBox later on in the, the episode. This episode's title is taken from our guest author's debut novel, The Confessions of Franny Langton, which is by the much-lauded new author Sarah Collins. She's picked up some high-profile fans already with the likes of Margaret Atwood and Emma Donoghue raving about her talents. And I saw that the Sunday Times have described her as a star in the making. What a debut to have. Uh, I understand she worked as a lawyer for 17 years before turning her hand to creative writing. I met up with Sarah online to talk about her new book and here she is reading from an early chapter. I used to be called Franny Langton before I was taken from paradise to London and given by Langton as maid to Mr. George Benham, who then gave me to his wife. It wasn't my choice to be brought here, but very little in my life ever was. I was Langton's creature. If I pleased him, I pleased myself. If he said something was to be, it was. But Langton was a man who'd named his own house Paradise, despite all that went on there, and named every living thing in Paradise too. What more do I need to tell you about him? Where I come from, there's more than one way a man gives you his name. He marries you or he buys you. In some places, that is the same thing, and they call it a dowry. But it's a truth everybody must savvy that in some places a man has no need to marry what he's bought. This isn't going to be the story of all that was done to me at Paradise or of everything I did, but I'll have to include some of it, I suppose. I've always wanted to tell my story, even though one person's story is only a raindrop in an ocean. But if you've ever stood in the sea when rain's coming, then you know there are two different kinds of water. Seawater is nothing like the first cold drop springing fresh on your face, then another on your tongue, then another pat, pat, pat on your closed eyelids, 
until all around you rain waters slapping at the sea. The difficult thing is to know where to start. My life began with some truly hard things, but my story doesn't have to, even though nothing draws honesty out of you like suffering, the receiving of it, but the giving also. I was born at paradise and I was still a small girl when they took me from the slave quarters up to the house. For a long time, I thought that was a stroke of luck, but it was nothing more than the liar's habit of trying to make fact better than truth. Some nights, if Fibba had left the shutters open and the candles lit, I could creep along the river through the damp grass, hide behind the sugar mill, gawp at the house. Yellow light shivered at the windows like church glass, and Miss Bella's shadow stretched grey and tall as she drifted past them. I pictured her inside, getting ready for bed, rolling towards Langton, the syrupy way white women move, not like the cabin women who were quick as hens. The house was a sight come morning too, sun shining like Langton's church shoes, heat already gripping my throat, but still a cat's tail of mist. I'd walk the track through the guinea grass up to the front porch, out in the cane piece, the men waiting for their bowl of mash, Lime-washed walls, porch wide as shoulders, the logwood shutters Miss Bella made Manso put up to shut out the bad air. I liked the idea that the house was as new as me. Langton used to brag about making Manso and the hired-on stonemasons and carpenters work like clocks for three years getting it plumb. Then I'd smooth out my brown calico, walk around to the back. Everything all the way to where the river cut north, black, slow, and mud-clogged, belonged to Langton. I'd sit right on one of Miss Bella's Campeche chairs, listen to the floorboards creak, lift my own arms out of the sun the way I'd seen the white ladies do, push my toes down to set the chair rocking, just close my eyes and wait for the day to crawl towards noon. Before they took me to live there, I only ever did that in my head. Then one afternoon, Miss Bella told Fibba to fetch me, and Fibba found me in the lower field with a third gang, where we'd been set with our little baskets of dung to throw into the cane holes. She took me through the cookhouse and washed my feet in the mop bucket, her kerchief fluttering like a yellow moth above her eyes, and the heat from her grills slapping at my legs. She spent a long minute grousing how Miss Bella wanted her enemies near, which had given her the work of chasing niggerlings all morning, and then a short minute dragging me inside. I asked what Miss Bella wanted me for, but Fibba was caked in the kind of spite that will not hair. Miss Bella was in the room that belonged to her and looked like her also, both covered in silks and velvets, smooth and cool as lizards, a room so vast I was struck mute when I passed into it, and so wide I felt it was gobbling me whole. Key, this place, endless like outside, I thought, but with a roof over you and windows that decide how much light can come in.
Miss Bella sat in the middle on her stool, skirts spilling all around her. I might have thought her a spider in a web, but with her small, shining eyes, she put me more in mind of a fly. She had a pitcher of goat's milk set in front of her on a low table, which also had bits of johnny cake strewn across it, as if put out for birds or rat catching. She picked out a piece of johnny cake. I took a step, which clanged like a bell and frightened me to a halt. There she was, rising towards me on an ocean of black satin. She had to reach for me and pull me all the way into the rest of the room. I remember now there was a looking glass in that room, right behind her. It was the first time I'd seen myself properly. There I was, stamping towards myself like a wild creature, my own face darting about on the surface like a fish I couldn't catch. I got another fright, so I stopped again, had to be tugged once more. The johnny cake had cooled and the milk was warm, Both must have been sitting out for a long time before she sent for me. So, she said, you are Francis. I made a curtsy. It's the name I gave you myself. That startled me. I hadn't known Miss Bella to take any interest in me before that very moment. I lost my curtsy and almost slipped and fell. I didn't know how to answer except to thank her. She shook her arm to remind me of the johnny cake she was holding. By then I'd grabbed myself a hunk in each hand from the table, but I took that piece straight from her own hand with my teeth. She puffed out her cheeks, then plunged her fingers into her mouth as if to lick them clean. You are a little savage. I bit my tongue. It is my husband who has decided you should live in this house, Francis. Yes, missus, I mumbled, around the bite I was trying to gulp down before she took any of it away. What you and I have in common is that neither of us had any say in the matter. I am happy to be here, missus. Well, seems I must be some sort of mother to you now. What to say to that? I never knew my mother, but here was the plain fact looking us both in the eye. Miss Bella was white and a very high lady. None such as herself had ever birthed the likes of me in the history of our hot little part of the earth. Brown and thick and strong as a horse I was then, though being a mulatta I was paler than any of the other blacks on that estate, with a great frizzled mess on top of my head, not like her own pale hair, which was so feathery the breeze lifted it and stirred it and played with it while it shunned mine. She said something else which I fancied was about her own life and therefore not my concern. She was gazing out the window when she said it too. I've lived too many years in a place where the snakes lurk in the house as well as the grass. Because she had said she was to be my mother, I chanced a question. How long am I to stay? She had a high colour on her throat. Her hands flittered like a frog's legs and she looked at me and then away as if I was the sun and gazing at me too long would hurt her eyes. I thought it strange that she should be so overcome when I was the rough creature brought up to her from the swamp and she, the great lady of the house who was giving me pity, 
surely as she was giving me Johnny Cates. Miss Bella was frightened of me. But then she said something that turned my attention sharp in another direction, as if a John Crow had just flown into the room. However long it is will be too long in the end. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you for that reading. For our listeners, can you give a short summary that best describes the confessions of Franny Langton? Yes. First of all, thank you for having me. I love the fact that this is a libraries podcast because libraries are among my favorite places on earth. Such a joy to think about Franny sitting on the shelves of numerous libraries. She is a young Jamaican woman who is brought to London from Jamaica in the early 19th century and given as a gift to a famous natural philosopher, George Benham, to work as a maid in his Mayfair mansion. But while there, she becomes instantly and obsessively attracted to her mistress, Benham's wife, who is a French woman, um, Marguerite Benham, known as Madame. And Madame and Franny embark on this very twisted love affair, which ends in tragedy when Benham and Madame are both found murdered and suspicion falls on Franny. She's arrested and accused of the crime. And the novel starts with her going on trial at the Old Bailey and her declaration that she never would have done this thing that she's accused of because she loved Madame. And it takes the form of her confessions. It's an account she's writing at her lawyer's urging. An attempt to tell her life story. And it becomes clear um, while you're reading it, or I hope it does, that it's an attempt to convince herself as much as the reader that she couldn't have committed these murders. Because the problem is that she has, or says she has, no memory of the night in question apart from being asleep. I wrote it as a kind of tribute to the gothic romances I loved and probably borrowed and kept too long out of the libraries of my youth, including Wuthering Heights, which I reread at least once a year when I was a teenager, and also Jane Eyre, um, ditto. And so on the road, I have uh, described it as Jane Eyre, if Jane had fallen in love with the madwoman in the attic and then been accused of murdering Mr. Rochester. Actually, that was one of my questions. I'd read somewhere that um, the character of Franny was inspired by Jane Eyre. Can you tell me a little bit more about the parallels between the two? Yes. One of the things I find really attractive about the character of Jane is how she leaps off the page. And I think one of the reasons for that is because there is a live wire of anger, and in particular, the anger of a woman who is being told that she can never reach beyond the boundaries that someone else has imposed on her. It's the really strong driving force behind Jane Eyre, and I feel as if I followed the live wire of that anger through to creating the protagonist of Franny. One of the things that interested me was how, how do you resist as a woman, and in particular as a black woman in a society where there is no scope for resisting. And so it's this idea of willful submission, and in particular the marvellous interiority, which is the basis for Jane's own resistance. 
you know, one might say it's all in Jane's head. A lot of a lot of Jane Eyre and a lot of the strength of that book is her commentary on what is happening to her. And ultimately, um, the resolution is quite conventional. You know, she does end up marrying Rochester when I think murder would have been a far better fate for him. But where she does resist is in her own thoughts and this development of a very strong sense of self and a self that cannot be taken advantage of, even though that seems impossible when you begin the novel. And that's what I really wanted to follow and try to replicate in Franny. But then, um, because I love Jane Eyre so much, there are all these little nods to that novel. You know, the fact that that Madame Benham lives in a room of, of her own, very high up in the house, very near the attic. The fact that she's very eccentric and some say mad and addicted to laudanum and does, you know, very um, unusual, let's say, things. The fact that you have a young woman coming into a house which um, holds its own mysteries and which she has to try and uncover. The fact that she's then separated from Madame, the love interest, but then comes back. There's even a little scene where um, when the lovers are reunited, Madame says, you know, I called out to you. Did you hear me? And so I yeah, had great fun. And I think one of the joys of writing a novel is that you can allow yourself those light moments, having great fun, paying tribute to the things that have clearly influenced you. And so I did. Yeah, that was that was um, something that struck me, actually, um, was, you know, wondering what that inspiration was. You, you've talked about Jane Eyre, you've touched on the gothic novel. I mean, your novel, your book, it covers so many uh, things. You deal with slavery, adultery, power, murder, what else really drove you towards writing this story? The thing that came first, and I think it must come first for a lot of novels, was just character. It was, there was a line which survived as a kind of epigraph to the novel um, in which Franny basically protests and says, I never would have done this thing you say I've done because I loved her. Um, and I, I felt like that really unlocked her character for me. And the image that came early and indelibly was of a young Jamaican maid on the steps of a Mayfair mansion. There was a fog because there always will be a fog in a Gothic novel set in London. (laughs) (laughs) And it was this idea that she could have murdered the only woman she ever loved. And how is she going to, it was her, the character and her predicament. How is she, a black woman in Georgian London, going to be able to defend herself against this kind of charge in this kind of society with everything that she had going against her? And then it went from there. And I was really very interested in story, first and foremost, not in themes. You know, the novel does wind its way through slavery and freedom and science and the position of woman in the early 19th century. And there's, you know, even a stint in a Georgian spanking parlor. But what came first for me was the character and that predicament and how is she going to get out of it? Where will that take her? And then I'm not one of those writers who says you follow where it leads because, you know, for for me, you have to be very honest about the fact that it's painstaking work creating the landscape that your character navigates through. But if you do that work well enough, then the character does take you in surprising directions. And the theme is almost revealed to you at the end, but it's not what you start with. You don't start trying to tackle subjects. You start trying to tackle people. This idea as well that was really compelling was, could a black woman be the star of one of these gothic romances that I had loved so much? Because I had never seen it in quite this way. And there is such joy and power in in doing that, in kind of 
reclaiming old canonical classical territory and refreshing it in this way. I had uh, become really fed up of looking to historical fiction for black characters and seeing only stereotypical slave narratives. And this was a chance to do something different, to consider a protagonist who had navigated her way through slavery, but who was educated and passionate and who fell in love and who was angry and all of those things that you might not expect if you are told, well, this story starts on a plantation in Jamaica with a young girl who grows up enslaved. That takes me on to my next question, actually, and links back to the fact that we are a library-themed podcast. Was this examination of the power of reading for self-education, but not just that, but also as a means of escape? And I just wonder why that was so important to you. Very much like Franny, I'm a huge bookworm. And when I, when I was thinking about the book very early in the writing process and thinking about not wanting to write about a person who had been enslaved because I didn't want to fall into all of the stereotypes or to make it just a narrative of victimhood. I was, I was trying to think about what, how I could distinguish it. What is it that I really wanted to say? And it was that autobiographical bit that gave me the spark. I've written about this before, but one thing that occurred to me was to ask myself the question, you know, if you were whisked back to late uh, 18th or early 19th century Jamaica by time machine, what would you lose? What about you would be different? You know, I would like to think that at my core, I would be the same. But one of the things that occurred to me is that I have very much been formed by my reading life and that that would have been, that would be one of the most heartbreaking losses. And after, after I had that realization, it was very easy then to imagine a young girl like me with the same appetite for books. I remember how much I love them. I remember begging to go to the library on a Saturday. I grew up in a very small island, um, Grand Cayman. You know, we didn't have big bookshops and we had to wait for books to be brought in by ship and plane. And I also was an immigrant. My family had um, moved here from Jamaica when I was four during the mid 70s when there was a period of real turmoil and, and political violence in Jamaica. And Jamaicans were not very welcome when I was growing up. So I had all of these feelings of, you know, being alienated and being lonely and trying to kind of figure my place out in the world. And the library and the world of books was where I felt unmitigatedly myself and accepted and, you know, not having to justify my existence and really identified so strongly with so many of those great female protagonists, including Jane. And so I wanted to recreate that. I wanted this idea of a young girl who would have been exactly like that, but born at a time when there would have been no outlet for it. And just as I could see her on the steps of that Mayfair mansion, I could also see her in the gardens of this Jamaican great house, looking through the window at the books that this beautiful English mistress of hers has collected in the dining room come library and wandering about them and wanting access to them and wanting to be able to read and wanting an outlet for her own intelligence and being actually naturally the most intelligent person on that plantation, but with no one bothering about her education except herself. And that's where that came from. And I'm really glad that I did that because I had not seen a character like that in a novel about that experience before. And tapping into that slightly autobiographical bit of inspiration, I think, is what took me in that direction. 
So we've talked about your inspiration. What were the biggest challenges you faced when you were writing this book? Oh, I mean, I can still remember it so vividly. You know, every time I'm asked this question, I remember one night in particular when I gave up, when I felt completely defeated by it. And the whole time I wrote the book, I felt that I had bitten off more than I can chew. You know, at one point I said to my agent, I just, you know, this book is beyond me. I don't have the capacity to write it. It's finishing me off and it will finish me off before I ever finish it off. And I was so profoundly mentally and physically exhausted that I did give up halfway through and I felt this relief that I didn't have to write the darn book anymore. (laughs) The one thing I could say to aspiring writers that I learned about going through that is that actually the biggest trick is just finishing the book and even just finishing it in a very rough, ready, unappealing way. Finish it and give yourself something then to go back over and to revise and to work with. And the next day, you know, I gave up. I binge watched something on Netflix. I thought, oh, I'm free. I'm finally free of this horrible um, burden of writing this novel. But the next morning I woke up and as I had as I had woken up for, for the whole 12 months to that point that I'd been writing the book, I woke up with something that Franny wanted to say, you know, lines would sort of coalesce overnight in my subconscious. And then I'd wake up and they would drive me out of bed and back to the book. And that is exactly what happened the next morning. And I went back to it and it was around about that time, I think, or very soon after that, um, that I developed one of the lines that has now become my favorite line in the novel. And it, because I think it encapsulates why I kept going. And it's when Franny is visited in prison by an abolitionist and tells him that she wants to write the story of her life herself. She's not going to dictate it to them. She's going to take control of writing it. And she says, you know, men write to separate themselves from the common history, but women write to try to join it. It's this idea of what a privilege it is to be able to write, to be able to contribute to the really important life-changing tradition of novels, to join the ranks of the novelists whom I had admired. Um, It was a kind of reminder to myself not to take it for granted and to give it all I had. So that was my interview with Sarah Collins talking about the confessions of Franny Langton. I think you can tell from my interview, I'm a huge fan of this book. I think it is such an entertaining book. It's beautifully written and I highly, highly recommend it. And it was really interesting to have that reading from chapter two because it's given me a real sense of what the book's all about. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go straight off and go and get my own copy now. Okay, so on to the next section of the podcast for which we're joined by a member of the library team to talk about one of this month's unlimited titles on Box. These are the audiobooks and ebooks that you don't have to wait for, even if loads of other people have borrowed them. So here we are, together with Ellie from Loxwood Library, talking about The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie by Muriel Spark, which is set in 1930s Edinburgh, but was originally published in the 1960s. Ellie, before we start, can I ask you if you're already a user of the Borrowbox app? Well, I wasn't. I have to confess that really before lockdown, I kept thinking I must go on Borrowbox, I must check it out and um, make use of it more. And I was a bit reluctant. And then with lockdown, I think we've all been driven that way. And um, I was really 
surprised at how much I, I love it. And my daughter has become an addict as well. So we're, we're now racing through Harry Potter on BorrowBox as well. Oh, fantastic. Actually, I tell you, I'm a complete convert. I listen to so many books that we discuss here on our roundtables for the podcast. I listen to them on the BorrowBox audiobook app. They're fantastic. Yeah, I've been really pleasantly surprised. Um, what about Miss Jean Brodie? Did you read that or listen to the audiobook? I read it. Yeah, I did read it. Um, and I actually, I did read it 20 years ago, in fact, but I, I'm not very good at remembering details sometimes. I knew I'd, I'd enjoyed it the first time round, but um, I loved this opportunity to, to get the chance to read it again. How about you, Kate? What did you use? I listened to the audiobook and uh, I think we, yeah, I will talk a little bit about what impact the audiobook had on me because uh, it really, really is quite striking. I think with me, so much about the audiobook, it's not just the writer, it's the narrator. Uh, and in this case, it's particularly so. But maybe we could start off perhaps, Ellie, could you tell us for people who haven't read it, we've all heard of it, but what is, what is The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie about? So it's um, a book set in 1930s Edinburgh, and it follows the six girls of the Brodie set, as they're known. They are a kind of an exclusive group of girls, almost chosen by Jean Brodie, the future, as her creme de la creme. We first meet them as they join the school. They join her class at about 10 years old and follow them through till they're about 17 or 18. She's just a very unorthodox very unorthodox teacher who really focuses on imparting her own opinions and beliefs and personal experience rather than focusing on the curriculum and almost pits herself against the headmistress, Miss Mackay. And she feels it's her duty, frequently tells the girls that she's dedicating herself to them in her prime. So she feels as if she's sort of um, almost gifting herself in her the best of her, her life, her prime, to them and their um, their sort of deeper education. Did you actually enjoy the book? Yeah, I loved it. You know, it's actually a very short book, um, and yet there seem to be there are so many themes and ideas that it sparks, even though it's so short. I absolutely loved this book. It was on my list of one of those ones that I knew I had to read, probably because I'd seen clips of the film with Maggie Smith and just thought it looked amazing. But I really wanted to read the book before I watched the film. And I'm so glad I did. It's an extraordinary book. It has so much to say, so many themes like you were talking about earlier, Ellie, um, and I recommend it completely. Yeah, I think it's great that you actually decided to read it first, because although Maggie Smith is fantastic in the film version, it's really quite different to um, to me in the way that she's presented in the book. I think it's nice to have them as, as separate works of art, really. They are two very different beasts, aren't they? The, the, the book and the film or the book and the play. And uh, yeah, it's a real scrap of a book, really. It's a really slim volume. Having listened to the audio book, I loved it so much. I, I went and um, bought it as a gift for my daughter because I thought she had so much about it that she'd really enjoy. Uh, and it's very, very slim volume. And yet it does regularly hit the kind of 100 best novels of all time. And there's so much in it, you know, so many different layers, so many different themes. And uh, you kind of bring to it uh, your own experiences to it so you can interpret it in so many different ways I absolutely loved it I think it's very uh, very much deserves its uh, its place on the top 100 books of all time I think one of the things I loved so much was the fact that 
I think almost all of us reflect on our time at school with with memories of teachers that, that really stand out. A lot of the reasons that they that our real favourite ones stand out are not necessarily academic, are they? They they are about the personality of the teacher or the quirks of the teacher, and I, I felt that this was really in tune with that, although quite extreme. <laughs> One thing I think we should mention. The fact that um, you and I both listened to it as an audiobook, Kate, is the amazing narration from Miriam Margulies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she is just, her characterization is just fantastic. I, I do love listening to a good narrator and she is beyond compare. I saw her a few years ago in um, Basingstoke doing a one-woman show about Charles Dickens's female characters. And I just, it was incredible. She could bring to life each of the characters and just paint this picture just by how she talked and how she behaved. And she does exactly the same thing in this audiobook. I'd highly recommend it. Her ability to do accents, the Scottish accent in particular, is really funny. It's She brings it to life completely. I would recommend it highly to anyone listening. Okay, so we know that the book is funny. It captures the atmosphere and excitement of the friendship group of the young girls um, with this inspiring woman who they look up to. Ellie, did any of this resonate with you? I mean, you've just mentioned teachers and how much they affect you. Well, certainly the, the teachers that stand out in your memory can really can influence your your thoughts your whole life can't they and um it's just I mean really it's a bit terrifying with her because although there are times where she's referred to as ridiculous and even fragile they really look up to her and some of the ideas that she sort of fills them with are so dangerous (laughs) really certainly the political ideas and the fact that it's set between the wars and she very openly to her class talks about her admiration for fascist regimes so she seems funny and and ridiculous at times and yet really her leanings are very dangerous <laughs> i was just going to say yeah the unfettered power that a teacher can have on the the children she teaches is quite frightening and it can be a wonderful steer and wonderful encouragement uh, but it can slip in this case just um, in a slightly worrying way. Not only, yes, the political leanings, but uh, uh, many of the other things that she encouraged her set to do were, were quite worrying. I mean, there was all sorts of things about it I loved about this book, but I really loved this. the flights of, well, in some ways, one of the main characters is Sandy, one of the uh, Jean Brody set. It's, it's pretty much all told from Sandy's perspective. Uh, and she has these wonderful flights of imagination that help her get through dull walks and dull lessons. And I I really enjoyed that. But I was also, one of the other things I wanted to pick up briefly was um, this really interesting theme of women between the wars. And it was something uh, in an earlier podcast, uh, Tracy Chevalier talked about in her book, uh, Single Thread, because there were a lot of these women that didn't get married. Um, There were too many women around, if you like, as so many people had died in the First World War. And this is something that uh, in The Prime Minister, Miss Jean Brodie, you get a completely different angle on because they're not so much surplus women as they are these women in their prime. Uh, And she described this one quote where she said, there were legions of her kind during the 1930s, women from the age of 30 and upward who crowded their war-bereaved spinsterhood with voyages of discovery. And I just thought, yeah, how interesting to have that uh, that slightly different angle. And they're, they're not uh, surplus. They're just living these worlds of adventure, unfettered by the demands of husbands and children. 
it's an interesting idea, isn't it? This voyage of discovery that it's almost as if she is trying to channel those different girls into different avenues to to fulfill all of the roles that she can't necessarily um, fulfill. And she has their paths mapped out for them. That's another interesting idea, isn't it? That um... but, Yeah, I, it's fascinating. She talks on and on about how she is dedicating herself to them, but really she is using them and, and exploiting them to create a life that she wants for herself. Yes, certainly. Um, the idea that she, so she'll hold back, won't she, from affairs with a married man, but then um, sort of encourage it in another in another way. That's an extraordinary episode in the book. You just wonder what on earth she is, what is her motivations? And that's something that I constantly ask throughout the book is what is motivating her to do this or what is motivating Sandy to behave in this way or another? And and I love that where there's an ambiguity you don't really understand and you want to understand. Uh, and that's what is one of the reasons that makes me, uh, you know, I carry on thinking about it afterwards because I'm always questioning what it is and there aren't any clear cut answers necessarily. So much of it seemed to be about power, having power and being able to use that power to get what you want, really. One of the other great themes of the book also is betrayal and loyalty. Quite early on, we learned that uh, Miss Brody is betrayed by one of her own sets. But one of the characters says, it's only possible to betray where loyalty is due. Obviously, we need to think about the fact that this was written in the 1960s, so there was a real preoccupation with the Cold War and loyalty, and also at that time reflecting back on the war and those fascist regimes that we talked about earlier, which are mentioned throughout the book. Ellie, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, certainly she has those that admiration for fascism, but I also thought there's a lot of reference to Calvinism and the religious element that sort of lies behind the book as well, even right in the last few lines Calvinism is mentioned and I, there's an element of predestination there isn't it where things are predetermined I thought that really is in tune with the narrative structure the fact that when you have references to the girls there's often a flash forward to their future isn't there to what their fate will be later on as if it's all mapped out already and I thought it's it's either that line the religious line or it's almost like Miss Jean Brodie's um, a dictator in her own class or with her own set that she is pushing them down that particular line in a way. One of the girls describes her as as like a god, don't they, at one point. Um, she thinks she's a, the god of Calvinism and sees the beginning and the end. It's something like that. Religion is something that comes up quite frequently in Muriel Sparks' work because I think she's somebody who did, she converted to Catholicism, I think, is that right? I'm I'm trying to remember now, but but religion is always an important aspect of her, her books. I also thought another, I'm goodness, there was so much to pull apart in this book, we carry on forever. But the theme of teaching was really interesting in the fact that uh, Miss Brodie defines education as a leading out of what's already in the student's soul, uh, whereas intrusion of planting something in a student's mind of what was not there before is not the right thing to do at all. But I kind of felt she says this, but actually, she's doing the opposite. She's totally manipulating her pupils, putting stuff in their minds uh, that was never going to have been there without her um, encouraging it. So do you, do you think that's the case or am I being too harsh on Jean Brodie? She really is quite domineering, really. 
on some things on quite a trivial level, it says near the beginning about instructing them on the use of witch hazel and cleansing cream as opposed to soap, you know, sort of really personal little things. And then down the really serious line of her really encouraging Joyce Emily Hammond, the, the one that sort of doesn't quite join the set, to go off and join in with the Spanish Civil War. Um, so she's really at all different levels seems to have more than just an influence, really. Going back to what you said, Kate, it's just one of her many contradictions. She says one thing and then we watch her behave in completely the opposite way. One of the things that made me laugh was how much she couldn't stand the girl guides. Yeah. (laughs) And really, as Sandy sort of realised, it's jealousy because she sees that organisation that might rival her own. So really, she just despises what she in fact herself wants I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I, I really love that Sandy, I mean, Sandy definitely to me seems like the main, it, it is, as you said, through through her eyes really more than anybody else's. And, um, you know, she's famous for her vowel sounds, but also her insight. And it's it's interesting that she's always referred to as having these tiny piggy eyes, these little eyes, um, when actually she seems to have the best vision or the most realistic vision perhaps of Jean Brodie, of all of them in the end. The story does really centre a lot on the girls' growing sexual awareness, uh, which is partly the fault, partly can be laid at the door of, uh, of, of Miss Jean Brodie herself, who, because she shares stories of her dead lover, Hugh, and so on. And I think it really is under her influence that Sandy and uh, her friend Jenny, they become really quite preoccupied with sex at an early age, talking, giggling about it, fantasizing and writing these long, broken hearted stories about imagining Miss Brodie having sex with their singing teacher and uh, all sorts of things. But uh, a lot of it is, you know, it's been provoked by Jean Brodie's uh, romantic stories. I think that's the source of a lot of the the humour of the book, isn't it? Their sort of, their flights of fancy. But she's certainly a glamorous teacher. I did think that was the funny thing about um, reflecting on your own time at school, that children do actually make up these fantasies about their, their teachers a little bit. They definitely, they definitely do, these ideas of romances between them. But it's just funny that in her case, it's much more likely to be true. <laughs> I was going to add that the preoccupation with sex amongst the young pupils paves the way for what happens towards the end of the book and Brodie's plans for one of the girls. So what what starts out as quite innocent actually takes on a much darker meaning. I think that goes with um, quite a lot of the, the themes in the book, doesn't it? That actually there's a lot of comedy to be had to a certain level and then actually could lead to quite a a poignant or even dangerous, more sinister end towards the end of the book. Yeah. I mean, some of the girls that come under her influence have quite sad endings to their personal stories. So we do see the dangerous influence that Brodie has on each of them. Yes, it's right. I, I found, I don't know about you, but I found the idea with Mary McGregor. I mean, actually, you learn quite quite early on in the book don't you what her fate is to be later on and maybe that's some kind of warning about the way that all of them could go yeah I thought she was quite a sad character because she seemed to be singled out 
as the one that they would all collectively bully. She didn't seem to have any traits that Brody thought were admirable. And as a result, it seemed like she didn't encourage Mary to think for herself. And then when Mary's in the fire, suddenly we hear about her running left and right and left and right and not able to find her way out. It's like she hasn't been able to think for herself her whole life um, and neither could she in death. Goodness. I hadn't even thought of that, but no, that's absolutely true. I, th- I did. I mean, I thought the the um, this this book was structured. There was a incredibly complex that the mixed times. It was a, they were the age of eleven, then they were going up to eighteen, and and then talking about their death and going into their middle age as well. It was in it was such a short book. It was incredibly complex. It was, but it keeps you hooked all the way. Yeah, I really couldn't think? stop thinking about it afterwards as well. Really um, kept thinking about it afterwards for quite some time. And yeah, particularly Mary, Mary McGregor, I think. Just when you looked at the, the different ways that they were pigeonholed and their, their descriptions. And she's, she's so often called just a silent lump. Yeah, it's quite sad, but quite thoughtful as well, what happens. Mm. Mm. Um yeah, I, as I say, we could carry on talking forever. But one final thing I was going to say is that towards the end of the book, they she does um, Sandy does start thinking of Jean Brodie as ridiculous, and I was interested in that 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 change of perspective as she grows up. And do you think she does become a ridiculous character towards the end? I do think, in a way, she she's a really strange contradiction, isn't she? Because when I think it's one of the male teachers earlier on calls her magnificent. And I agreed with that, that she does seem kind of magnificent. And yet then when when she's referred to as ridiculous later, yes, by Sandy, I thought, yeah, that's true as well. She's really quite a contradiction, isn't she? And complex. She's such a complex character. And I think that the views of the other characters towards her says something about them. So for Sandy, who hero worships her at the beginning, to then call her ridiculous at the end tells us more about the journey that Sandy has gone on herself, Mm. I think. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Did you notice how, um, as much as uh, Sandy seems to, you know, love Jean Brodie, she's also, as you said before, she sort of drifts off in the lessons and has these flights of fancy and um, really imagining these amazing situations. But she's also really drawn to the science lab, um, to Miss Lockhart's science lab. And, and there's almost um, this appeal of going from, they talk a lot about art in Jean Brodie's class. And Miss Brodie clearly puts art above everything else. And yet the girls are all really drawn to the science lab, the sort of glamour of all the, the chemicals and the white coats and everything of the more sort of black and white world of science in the end. And it, it may be maybe we see Sandy sort of progressing that way gradually as she goes up towards the upper school. She becomes attracted to science and logic and becomes removed from the fantasy world that she belongs to herself, but also that Brody fosters with the girls. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It is an extraordinary book because so much of this seems to have been so planned and so carefully um, mapped out. And yet you also feel it's a very naturally written book that's come so much from her own personal experiences. So to to, have, to be able to do that, to, that balancing act is quite a feat. Only five or six chapters, I believe, in the end. And it's um, neatly, neatly packed in there, isn't it? 
Well, thank you very much for your insight, Ellie. Safe to say we all enjoyed that book and we'll have another expert from the library team with us in next month's podcast. Thanks to Ellie from Locksford Library. As well as the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, there's quite a few other new unlimited titles on BorrowBox this month. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes, but we'll just mention a few here. So there is The Unexpected Return of Josephine Fox by Claire Gradich, which is set in Romsey. And My Brother's Road gets a couple of mentions in this book, which he was very excited about. We'll be uploading a podcast interview with Claire about this book in a week or so, so well worth a listen. Another one on the list this month is An Unsuitable Match by Joanna Trollope. You may remember that we have an interview with Joanna about this book in one of our earlier podcasts. If you haven't listened to it, give it a try. She's she's really good fun. She is such a character, isn't she, Joanna Trollope? One of the feature titles for July is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, it's The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Lefteri, a moving and realistic description of the refugee experience told through the eyes of Nuri, a Syrian beekeeper, and his wife, Afra. So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook page. There's a particularly bumper crop of new children's unlimited titles on BorrowBox this month because, of course, it's the start of the annual Summer Reading Challenge. This is where primary school children are challenged to read six books over the summer holidays when literacy literacy levels can otherwise dip. Last year, a staggering 26,000 children took part in the challenge with Hampshire Libraries. This year, it's going to be a bit different because although uh, libraries are open, we are encouraging people to keep their visits to as short a time as possible. So this year's Summer Reading Challenge is going to be online. Um, We'll include a link to our special website where children can register to take part. It's packed with activities, videos, book reviews and updates to keep children involved with the challenge all summer long. You'll also find our libraries have properly embraced the silly squad theme of this year's reading challenge on their different Facebook pages. If you want to know a little bit more about the Summer Reading Challenge, if you haven't taken part before and you want a bit of inspiration, um, we've actually got a podcast episode about the Summer Reading Challenge featuring the very talented local writer, Ali Sparks. So well worth a listen. Yeah, that went out as part of last year's Summer Reading Challenge, but it's just as interesting to listen to today. And we are going to be putting together a special Summer Reading Challenge podcast for this year as well. So look out for that. And we need to thank our supporter, BorrowBox, once again, because they're also being a great support to us for this year's Summer Reading Challenge. BorrowBox is our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. Remember, all you need is your library membership number and PIN, and you'll find all the details on our website. That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Mary Stone. 